thank you, Doug, for that. Let's just congratulate him on not tripping down the stairs right there. He made it uh, through his whole time. Uh, so as Doug said, my name is Matt Mela. I'm the RUF campus minister at Duke uh, in Durham. This is my fourth year there on campus, which means I'm one of those people that gets to steal credit from Eric all the time. So uh, thank you, Eric, for that. Uh, it's, a, it's a gift to get to do that, and it's a joy to be here with you. I've had a chance to get to know a few of your elders and, and Pastor Dave over my time here. And uh, let me just say you guys are blessed uh, with the leaders you have. It's just been encouragement to get to know some of you people, and now I'm glad for the opportunity to get to be with you all in worship here. So it's just a joy to be with you. We're going to be looking at a somewhat familiar story from the Gospel of Luke, uh, this feeding of the 5,000. It's probably a story you are somewhat familiar with if you've been involved in church at all. Uh, But it's my hope that God will speak to us in new and fresh ways this morning and we'll be encouraged by what we hear from him. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, and then 10 through 17. Uh, That's Luke 9, 1 and 2, verses 10 through 17. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know his love for us. Would you join me in prayer as we prepare to hear from it? Heavenly Father, uh, I just praise you and thank you that you have brought us to this place. Uh, We've mentioned already in the service, Lord, uh, we don't know where everybody comes from as they come into worship this morning, but you do. And I pray that by your spirit, that you would speak to each individual heart here in a way that would be life-changing for them. God, if there are people who need to be encouraged, would you encourage them? If there are people that need to be challenged, would you challenge them? If there are people who need to know you and embrace you as their Lord and King, would you enable them to do that by your spirit? And God, I just ask that we all would be different people as a result of encountering your word this morning. Lord, take all my words that are going to be distracting to your word out of the way and speak directly to the heart of your people. For your glory and our good, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in college, I spent a summer working in youth ministry. Youth ministry, it's a really powerful thing, in Atlanta area at at a very large church. And this church had had tremendous impact over the years. And so it was really hard for me to imagine, just having spent this one summer, that there was a time where this church didn't exist, that it was a you know, small and growing church. And so I was really curious to go to a dinner that they had where they were explaining how the church got started. I was just interested to hear what the story of that was. 
And I remember distinctly at this dinner that the pastor said as he was preparing to plant this church that he was challenged by someone to attempt to do something so impossible that it was doomed to fail unless God was in it. Attempt to do something so impossible that it was doomed to fail unless God was in it. Of course, the point being that the hope and prayer for the church would be that when people looked at it years later, they would be able to say there's no way that man could take credit for what has happened here in this place. And what was so striking to me about that statement was not that it really seemed like it happened, as cool as that was. What was striking about this statement to attempt to do something so impossible, it's doomed to fail unless God is in it, isn't just the call for people looking to start big and impactful churches. It's not the call for people looking to do nonprofits. It's not the call for a group of 12 ordinary men feeding a crowd of over 5,000 people. That it's the way we can think about the call of following Jesus for all of us. To attempt to do something so impossible, it's doomed to fail unless God is in it. And so if it's an impossibility for us just simply to answer the call of Jesus in our everyday lives, what that means is that in order to accomplish this call, we need a power that comes from outside of us. We need the power of Jesus. And as we see in this story, this story of these 12 disciples put in a spot that was impossible for them, we find that the power of Jesus ultimately comes from his presence. So here's where I want to organize our time this morning. I want to talk about the call of Jesus. I want to talk about the power of Jesus. And then I want to talk about the presence of Jesus. The call, the power, and the presence. So if you look at verse 1 in our passage, Jesus is calling the disciples, the 12, together. And you can think of this as sort of a team meeting. It's where he's establishing the mission statement of what it means to follow Jesus. And so we're getting an indication of what it means for us if we call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus too. And what Jesus does in this moment for these disciples is he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, before we dig into what that means for our lives, I want to make this point that these 12 disciples, their call is like ours in some way, but it's also unlike ours in some way. These 12 in particular, they were commissioned to start the church. They were given an authoritative message so that when they communicated what Jesus told them to the church, it had the authority of Jesus' teaching which is how we have the New Testament in the first place. It's how we have Luke's gospel to read from this morning. It also says that they were given power, and that word there is miraculous power. They're given power to heal diseases and cast out demons. I've been a Christian for a little while now, and I have never met anybody who regularly has that kind of power at their disposal. They are unlike us in some way, and their call is unlike ours. But in other ways, they're just like us. This is 12 ordinary guys. You've got some fishermen. You've got a radical revolutionary to mix things up a little bit. You've got a tax collector. You really could take a sampling of 12 ordinary people from the congregation this morning, and it would be similar to the kinds of people that we're talking about here. They're just like us in some ways. This passage later calls the 12 apostles, which is just a word that means people who are sent. And so if we think of them as big A apostles, it's helpful to think of us as ordinary Christians, as little A apostles. Everybody who is a Christian is sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's the call of Jesus. And so the question for us then becomes, what does that actually look like? What does it mean for us to be sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God? 
Well, first and foremost, it means that we're not proclaiming the kingdom of us. The first part of answering the call to proclaim the kingdom of God is recognizing that Jesus actually is a king who has authority to send us where he will. It's a way of acknowledging that our destinies are not up to us, and he has the right to send us wherever he wants to send us. How does that sit with you? That's what it means to proclaim the kingdom of God. So what we first and foremost have to do is acknowledge his authority and then answer the call. We didn't read it in our particular passage, but that's exactly what these disciples do. It says they go out into the surrounding villages and countryside proclaiming the kingdom of God. They answer the call that Jesus gave to them. Have you answered that call? If you are a Christian this morning, has your life become about proclaiming the kingdom of God everywhere that you go? If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I would say to you that there is no more ambitious, no more powerful thing that you can do with your life than to live your life as a life of proclamation of God's kingdom. And that's because proclaiming the kingdom of God is this amazing, powerful, all-encompassing thing. First of all, it requires using our words. Because proclamation is a word that means to announce or extend, or publicly or extensively. To proclaim the kingdom of God means we have to use our words in proclamation. I found that Christians, myself included, often like that quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You might be familiar with it. It says, to preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. I think oftentimes we like that quote not because it calls us to radical lives of gospel actions, but because we don't really like to talk about Jesus that much. We don't like to acknowledge for ourselves and the people around us that their only hope in this life is to trust in a Jewish carpenter that lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross. Oh yeah, and incidentally, he rose again from the dead too. I remember leading a Bible study for a freshman and we were talking about this idea of evangelism. And so the question came, well, how do we engage in evangelism here on this campus? And the first person raised their hand and said, well, we can be kind to the people who work in the dining hall. And everybody was like, yeah, that sounds good. And then the conversation just about ended there. Sure, that's a great way to advance the kingdom of God, but nobody came up with the answer that we could actually try to talk to our friends and classmates and roommates about Jesus. Now, incidentally, I get this, that when I meet people, it comes to that moment uh, inevitably where they ask me what I do for a living, and I begin to squirm a little bit as I begin to think about, I have to answer this question that I am a pastor. And that's really sad because I actually have one of the easiest segues to talk about matters of faith than anybody, and yet I can still feel this hesitancy to use my words to talk about Jesus. But if we are going to proclaim the kingdom of God, we need to proclaim with our words his kingship over all things. That's not to say that our actions aren't important. The thing that Jesus does all throughout the Gospels is that he backs up his words with his actions. It's really not that great to call yourself a compassionate savior if you don't demonstrate compassion and actually save people. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are hungry, for they will be satisfied. And then we see in this passage Jesus feeding a hungry crowd until they all eat and are satisfied. 
Right after this, he's going to say, it is necessary, it is of divine necessity that I suffer many things and die in order to rescue my people. And the rest of the Gospel of Luke is how Jesus marches into Jerusalem so he might suffer and die to save his people. When Jesus calls us, he calls for our kingdom words to be backed up with kingdom actions. And so the proclamation of the kingdom for the disciples, it was coupled with healing physical diseases. It was coupled with a command to feed a hungry crowd. Our God who has taken on a physical body cares about meeting physical needs. So let me ask you, what are the physical needs of Greenville and Winterville? What are the physical needs of your neighbors? How might God use you to be part of meeting those needs? He gives them power and authority to cast out demons, which suggests, too, that this kingdom also cares about spiritual and mental and emotional realities and needs that we present are presented with as well. And you get the impression that when the disciples go out on this journey, they're going to meet lots of individuals along the way who communicate their needs. And then we see Jesus commanding them to feed a hungry crowd. So Jesus' kingdom cares about individual needs, and it also cares about community needs as well. Jesus' kingdom is this all-encompassing reality in which this compassionate servant king has come to a broken place on behalf of broken people. He has come to eradicate sickness. He has come to eliminate sadness. He's come to abolish injustice. He has come to do away with sin and death. He's ushering in a kingdom of health and joy and righteousness and life where everybody would bow their knee to him as king. Talk about an ambitious plan that our Savior has for this world. But this needs to be said, too, that the kingdom of God doesn't just come at convenient times. And it doesn't just come when it fits neatly into our schedule. You would have noticed in this passage in verses 10 and 11 that the disciples come back from their journey and Jesus takes them away so that they might process through all that they've seen and done. In Mark's account, it says that they went away to rest from their journey. And yet a hungry crowd finds them while they are away to process with their needs. The kingdom of God cannot take vacation days. But I find that I regularly think about how I can, I regularly don't think about how I can use my words and my actions to communicate the kingdom of God when I'm on vacation. But the needs that the kingdom addresses do not take off days and do not ask to fit neatly and comfortably into our schedule. Here's what's so amazing about what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 9. He is actually training his disciples to take over for him. This blows me away. Jesus' plan A for his kingdom to move extensively into the world is to use us. That's just not the way I would have drawn it up. If you think that ushering in the kingdom is possible for you in your own strength, you are as crazy as thinking that 12 ordinary guys can feed a crowd of over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. You see, I'm convinced that Christians want to talk about our faith in winsome ways. We want to share our faith. We want to engage in justice issues. We want to serve the needs of our community. But oftentimes we look at the need around us and it just feels too impossible for us. It just feels too big and beyond us and it feels easier to remain on the sidelines. 
And we forget that not only do we have the call of Jesus, but we have the power of Jesus with us as well. If you are overwhelmed by the call of proclaiming the kingdom of God, you might actually be understanding what Jesus has called you to. The problem is not being overwhelmed. The problem is staying there and forgetting about his power given to us. I think oftentimes Christians can be like little kids, afraid to go out onto the basketball court against the big kids, forgetting that we have LeBron James or Michael Jordan on our team. You see, Jesus doesn't just call his disciples into an impossible task, but he also gives them his power as he sends them out. We see this in verse 1. He gave them power and authority to heal diseases and to cast out demons. Here's what this suggests. They couldn't do that without him giving his power to them. And you, and you get the impression from the passage that they've probably seen some pretty amazing things. I mean, after all, when they come back in verses 10 and 11, they're excitedly telling Jesus about all that they have seen and done. They're telling him about the ways that they have healed diseases and cast out demons, how they've seen people come to embrace this kingdom reality. They're excited about what they have seen God do in and through them by his power. But then they come to a desolate place, a word that could also be translated wilderness. And they're confronted with a crowd of over 5,000 people who have a need in order to be met. And Jesus looks them in the eye and he says to them, you give them something to eat. That's not a suggestion. It's not a joke. Jesus is commanding them to feed the crowd. Can you imagine what their reaction must have been like to that? Uh, about a month or so ago, we had a gathering of 50 people at our house, and I was freaking out about how we were going to feed all those people. And I have Costco and credit cards at my disposal. I mean, Jesus is sitting here and calling them to do this, like, oh, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish and nowhere near enough money to feed this crowd. This wilderness situation is meant to call to mind for us another wilderness situation with a hungry group of people. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, the people of God, the Israelites, have seen God do these amazing things through two ordinary guys, Aaron and Moses. They have seen God bring the mighty Egyptian empire to its knees by bringing plagues upon them so he might free his people from slavery. They have seen Moses stand in front of a sea, raise an ordinary stick into the, into the air and slam it into the ground, and that sea part in two directions so they can walk across on dry land. They have seen God do amazing things, and then they come to the wilderness, and there's no food, and they're hungry, and they begin to panic and complain and freak out. But here's what we need to understand about that Exodus story. That it is the Lord who led them into the wilderness. We need to understand about this story that it is Jesus who has put his disciples in this particular place for a reason. You see, Jesus gives us a task that is too big and impossible for us to expose us as forgetters. To expose us as people who forget what he has done in the past for us. You might be sitting here thinking, just the challenge of trying to follow Jesus as a faithful parent, as a faithful spouse, as a faithful child, as a faithful student or employee or coworker or neighbor, just feels too big and difficult in this, in this cultural moment that we're in and all the pain and difficulty we're facing. When we think about that, we find that our eyes are fixated on us 
and the impossibility of it all for us. Wait, you want me to care about the physical needs of my neighbors? I mean, I can barely pay the bills or get all my work done or keep my house clean or keep my kids alive or do all my homework. You want me to communicate the gospel of Jesus in a winsome way to people that would be skeptical of it? I'm not even sure I believe it all the time. What Jesus is doing here is exposing them as forgetters Because they never stop to think that the one who has asked them to feed a hungry crowd is the same one that has just raised a girl from the dead. They don't stop to think that they have been seeing Jesus do all of these amazing things for the entire time that they have known him. Sometimes we look at the call of kingdom proclamation and we forget that he promises to give us the spirit of his power to dwell inside of us if we believe and trust in him. One of the key themes of the past year of my family's life was we had a widespread mold situation in our rental home. Uh, We were living close to Duke, and we wanted to continue living close to Duke, but as you probably all know, the real estate market is pretty insane right now. And so we were praying and praying, God, would you provide us a new house to live somewhere close to Duke so we continue this call that we believe you've given upon our lives? And if I'm honest... I believed he could do it, but I don't think I believed he actually would do it. And so when he provided the exact house we needed in the exact location we wanted to be in, I was surprised. But why? Why was I surprised? Every time I have needed somewhere to live in the past, God has shown up and provided that. Every time I have come in my need, he has shown up to provide. You see, the other reason why Jesus leads us to these places that are too big for us is because he wants to show us how much he wants to provide for us. He wants to show us how much he graciously loves us to give us what we need. He led the Israelites into the wilderness so that he could rain down bread from heaven on them so that they might believe more in his power and his grace. He led the disciples into this moment so that he might show them how he can feed this hungry crowd. And here's what I want you to see in this passage. Did you notice what it says that Jesus does when the hungry crowd comes to him? It says that he welcomed them. When you come to Jesus recognizing your need, he opens his arms in welcome to you. What's amazing about this is that he doesn't look at the disciples and their impossibility and shame or embarrass them for their inability. He actually uses what they have and what they bring to the table. He takes their five pathetic loaves of bread and their two measly fish and he makes it work. Sure, they can't feed a hungry crowd, but he gives them things they can do. They can count to 50 and they can sit people down in groups. You cannot make your skeptical friend or family member come to faith in Jesus. But you can pray for them. And you can talk about what Jesus has done in your own life. You can invite them into spaces where they might encounter Jesus themselves. You can ask them questions. Jesus can use that. You can't eradicate racism and division and injustice in our world, but you can befriend people who believe and think different than you or look different than you. 
You can hear their stories and come to understand them. You can stand with them in unity as fellow image bearers made with dignity and worth. Jesus can use that. You can't fix somebody's pain and suffering. But you can sit with them. And you can cry with them. You can bring them a meal. Tell them that you love them and pray for them. Jesus can use that. Bringing the kingdom of God to fruition in this world is not our job. It is Jesus's. But he promises to empower our actions, small or big, to use our words, eloquent or not eloquent, to bring about that kingdom reality. That he takes our words and our actions and he infuses them with his power to bring his kingdom to fruition. We do not just have this impossible call, but we also have the power of his spirit with us at work. I want to make one more point of this passage of how we experience that power. How it begins to manifest itself more and more in our lives. And I'm just going to warn you, in order to do this, i got to get a little nerdy on the grammar of the text. So if that's not your thing, just hang with me. I promise this is an important and powerful point. But I want you to look at verse 16 with me. In verse 16, what we see Jesus doing is taking the five loaves and two fish, and it says, He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. There are three verbs in there that all come in the same tense. And that tense is a tense that conveys one-time action. So he looked up one time to heaven, said a blessing one time, and he broke the loaves one time. But when he gave the bread to the disciples, that verb is in a different tense. And what that tense conveys is a continuous action, which suggests that Jesus kept giving the bread to the disciples. Which tells us that when they ran out of his empowerment for the task, they had to return to his presence again in order to get that bread to continue to feed the crowd. This summer, my family did the YMCA pool a lot, and I've got a five-year-old son who is a, a daring and developing swimmer. It's a little bit terrifying to send him out into the pool, but he can kind of get around. But I've noticed that when he goes to a part of the pool that's too deep for him, that he'll venture off a little bit into the pool, and then he'll keep coming back to me in order to hang on to me for a little bit and rest and recover. And then get the strength he needs to then continue out into the deep and dangerous waters. Isn't it awesome how kids are just great pictures of what it looks like to follow Jesus? You see, Jesus is inviting us, when we think about going out into the dangerous world to proclaim his kingdom, to return to his presence again and again and again. To receive the power and strength that we need to accomplish this task that he has called us to. When we place faith in Jesus, we don't just get forgiveness of our sins and the gift of his righteousness credited to us, as amazing as those gifts are. But then when we place faith in Jesus, he also promises to grow us. He promises to strengthen us. He promises to make us more effective to advance his kingdom. And the way that that power comes to us is recognizing more and more quickly that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves, and returning to his presence again and again and again. That is the invitation for us to keep coming back to him. He does not grow tired of welcoming us, and we never graduate from our need for the presence of Jesus. 
We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this passage is filled with Lord's Supper themes. That we are called in this moment when we do this to remember just how far Jesus would go to establish his presence with us. That when Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper, he's looking back to that moment in the wilderness where he rained down bread from heaven on a group of forgetful, distressed, freaking out followers so that he could show them that he provides and he loves them. But he also was pointing forward to a moment where he would give his own body to be broken as bread, his own blood to be shed as the cup of the new covenant, so that we might remember when we celebrate this that he is so committed to being with us that he would give his very life for us. In this passage, it says that when the disciples took up the leftover bread, that there were 12 baskets full. It seems like Jesus is saying that I've got enough for each one of you. But what he's also saying is that when he brings life, he brings it abundantly. When he brings his provision, he brings it abundantly. And so what that means is that when we come to him in our need, we can trust that he will provide for us out of his abundant love. And what better picture, there's no better picture of that than we have than the cross. When he would pour out his own life abundantly so that we might be freed from our sin and empowered to proclaim that kingdom everywhere we go. There's no doubt that the call of proclaiming the kingdom of God is a task so impossible that it is doomed to fail unless God is in it. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that what God says when you trust in him that he is in it with you every step of the way. So he invites us to respond to his call to a life of kingdom proclamation. He calls us to remember that when we go, he has given us his power to accomplish that which is impossible for us, but not impossible for him. And then he invites us to return to his presence again and again and again. And when we return to the presence of Jesus, we know that he will always welcome us. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you that you have called us into a task that is too big for us because you want us to keep returning to you. You want us to come to the end of ourselves and run to you. And when we do that and we come in our need, you don't shame or embarrass us. You don't show us how disappointed you are that we can't do it. You welcome us and you strengthen us and then you send us back out. Father, I pray that we would trust that we can return to the presence of Jesus again and again, that we would believe in our hearts that you do not grow tired or weary from us coming to you. But I also pray that we would have a boldness to respond to your call, remembering that we have your power. And God, would you take our ordinary words and actions and would you make them extraordinary to bring your kingdom into fruition in this city, in this country, in this world. All for your glory, Lord, and the good of us, your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.